happy 2023. Happy New Year, guys. Um, glad to have you with us in this new year. Um, last year was a banger. This year is going to be even better. Oh, yeah. This year is going to be, like, last year was, like, an amazing Panenka penalty. This year is going to be, like, a free kick from, like, 40 yards out. Like, by Roberto Carlos with an amazing curve. This year is going to be amazing. Starting off this amazing year, um, we had an, an incredible conversation with Juan Andres Lasala, our first guest of the year, works in CONCACAF. And for those who don't know, CONCACAF is the Confederation of North, Central America, and the Caribbean Association of Football. Um, not American football, the better football, soccer. And um, before we, we get to the interview that you're going to watch right now. I thought you are 2023 goal was to not get canceled. How am I going to get canceled for, for saying that soccer is better than football? Like, <laughs> just look at, at the proportion of people who follow each sport, and then you're going to see. But uh, anyway, uh, we're going to cover a little bit of the recent headlines before the interview. And yeah, we're going to inform you guys because informed people are more informed than not informed people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like, yeah, you're right. Um, <laughs> no one can disagree with that, Marco. You're doing a good job on the tracks so and not getting canceled. Okay. Um, yeah, you can get us started, Molly. So in tennis, the Australian Open finals took place this past weekend, and the women's final took place on Saturday and featured a comeback win by Ariana Sabalenka, who beat Elena Rybakina after losing the first set. I did that uh, flawlessly with the names. Um... Interesting last names. I don't, I want to do more research into, I don't know anything about Australia, but I just didn't expect those to be Australian. Like, I don't know what You're Australian. not Australian, Amalia. Australian Open is the name oh. of the tournament. It's international <laughs> tennis. Um, oh, okay. Sabalenka, actually, she has no, uh, no flag on her, on her, like, name, because Russia is kind of banned. She's Russian, okay. but she's not, like, affiliated to a country right now to be able to participate in the tournament and Rybakina she is from Kyrgyzstan I think oh which is uh, close to um the best country in the world Kazakhstan home to Borat so yeah we're studying abroad there basically just kidding um anyway in the men's final Novak Djokovic Djokovic beat Stefano's Sipas, Sipas, and then three sets, which equaling Rafael Nadal's 22 Grand Slam wins and setting the record of most Australian Open wins with his 10th time lifting the trophy this past weekend. It's pretty cool. What about American football, Amalia? Tell us what happened. Oh, I know so much about American football. American football, mark your calendars. <laughs> The 2023 Super Bowl will be on Sunday, February 12th, and will feature the Philadelphia Eagles versus the Kansas City Chiefs. So have a Valentine's Day week, sit down with your something other, watch it. it. Would be great. But don't bet on different teams or else it will not be a fun Valentine's Day. Or go to the gym. Nobody's at the gym during the Super Bowl. That's that's like playing chess or everybody's playing checkers. Go to the gym during the Super Bowl. Oh, sorry about everybody else, Margot, for going to the gym. Whenever you can, ever possible. 
Uh, while the Eagles were extremely dominant against the 49ers in a 31-7 victory, the Chiefs beat the Bengals in the embers of the NFL Conference Championship game. The Bengals and the Chiefs were tied 20-20 before the Chiefs kicked a winning field goal in the last seconds to clinch their spot in a Super Bowl. That's pretty cool. Um, uh, yeah, now let's talk about football. Uh, the better football. I mean, soccer. Um, in England, uh, better football <laughs> with the parentheses with the exclamation point. Okay. Um, yeah, but it's true though. In England, <laughs> um, it was full of FA Cup action. No Premier League uh, this week. Um, and yeah, it started off with Man City beating Arsenal one nil thanks to uh, Nathan Akego. Um, it was followed by a Man United um, win against Reading thanks to two Casemiro goals, the Braves. You don't often see a center defensive mid scoring two goals, but Casemiro is amazing. Um, Opposite alert, um, Brighton beat Liverpool 2-1. And it seems like Liverpool is uh, going through a tough moment, you know, because they're out of the FA Cup. They're mid-table in the Premier League. Um, They're going to play against Real Madrid in the Champions League, which is kind of like their kryptonite. So, yeah, bad time for... Liverpool fans. And lastly, uh, Ryan Reynolds, he's the owner of Wrexham AFC, which is a non-league side in England. But they tied against Sheffield United, which is a second division team, like much higher in terms of budget, um, quality of players. And they're going to go to another playoff game against Sheffield United. They're going to play. And whoever wins that goes to the fifth round of the FA Cup, which would be massive if Wrexham are able to do it because first non-league site in history to reach the fifth round of the FA Cup. So hmm. that is... Um, Why was there no Premier League this week? Because they were playing the FA Cup. Um, oh. Since, like, in England, they have the EFL Cup, the FA Cup, and the Premier League. So normally it's only one cup and the Premier League and, and the league in the country. But in England, they have two cups. And, yeah, they had to intertwine them with the Premier League to fit them on the schedule. And then comes the Champions League, which is the Continental Cup. Hmm. So, yeah, players are playing a game every three days or so. It's Wow. Yeah, it's tough. So, um, what went on in Spain, Amalia? Oh, what went on in Spain? Lucky you asked that. Um, I actually going to Spain uh, this summer, so watch out for a vlog. Uh so in Spain, Barcelona extended their lead at the top of La Liga to five points as their narrow one to zero win against Girona or Girona was Girona. enough. Girona was enough to earn them the three points, while Real Madrid drew zero to zero against Real Sociedad. So, yeah, that's good. Espanol. Meanwhile, in the Serie A. Milan were thrashed five to two by Sassuolo. What? What? This has to be made up. No, no, I'm, it's not made up. Sassuolo is an actual team. I've never heard names like this. Okay, this is their second consecutive loss in which they've conceded four plus goals. Juve lost against Monza and are now standing in thirteenth position in the table after their fifteen point penalty for accounting irregularities and overstating transfer values. I don't know what that means, but it sounds like a lot, a lot of violations were made. Napoli beat Roma 2-1 to and are 13 points clear at the top of the race for a low Scudetto. 
Forza Napoli. <laughs> Your American accent when saying stuff in Italian is kind of funny. I'm sorry, I was born here. Okay. <laughs> no, actually, going into the US stuff, they overstated player values and transfers, which means they were getting players plus cash deals um, done. Mm -hmm. So they exchanged player A for player B, who was at another team. And they so they get player B plus uh, some cash. And they overstated the value of the player to kind of like say they got a profit from the transfer deal. Instead of being like a, um, a balanced trade, they overstated player values, which mm. is kind of to, especially during the pandemic, to kind of say like we're actually be doing better than we actually are. So they can spend more money on player salaries. And going back to player salaries, they were actually paying them through offshore accounts or under the table accounts. So because during the pandemic, they said that players actually accepted salary cuts voluntarily and they actually didn't get salary cuts. They were just getting paid on another account under the table, which is going to probably result in many more investigations into the players involved. And yeah. Sounds like a documentary to me. Girls yeah, I mean, watch out, guys. Don't, uh, don't do financial irregularities. Pay your taxes. Um, Although if, if you if you don't want to pay your taxes, it's fine if 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 you find a good loophole. But remember, if you want to cheat the system, you got to cheat it well. Mm -hmm. um, and now going to the Bundesliga, um, the Rückrunde, which is the turn round of the Bundesliga. So it's the Hinrund is the first half of the season. Then they go on a break, and then it's the Rückrunde. And yeah, Bayern's slow start continued. I'm still wearing a Bayern shirt because I'm loyal. Um, but yeah, three three draw, three draws in a row. Um, one one draws, which is kind of boring for for me watching them. But um, yeah, they drew one one against Eintracht Frankfurt, and um, that's. I mean, they're still first on the table, but they're just one point ahead of Union Berlin, who is then followed by like a lot of teams who are really close to Bayern. So between the the first place Bayern Munich and the sixth place um, Eintracht Frankfurt, there are only five points separating the teams. So it's getting really good for uh, those who want an entertaining title race, but I just want Bayern to win. So it's kind of sad. <laughs> but there's good news. There's always good news. There's light at the end of the tunnel. And Joao Cancelo, uh, just breaking news today, like right now, Monday, uh, January 30th, he has joined Bayern Munich on loan with an option to buy for 70 million euros, which is a lot of money, but might be worth it. He's one of the best players in his position. So yeah. Wow. Imagine like what Bayern can do with, with John Cancelo if they can get their stuff right in the management department in terms of Julian Nagelsmann, who still hasn't convinced many Bayern Munich fans, me and like I'm one of those who he hasn't convinced because if he's he's kind of inconsistent, his win rate is relatively low compared to other Bayern managers. So uh, let's see what happens. Hopefully they win the league again for an 11th time in a row. What would he have to do to convince you? Convince? Win the Champions League, win the Bundesliga, and win the German Cup. You're going to be a tough parent. I'm going to say that. Jesus. What? No, I'm not going to be. I'm going to. My kids are going to be successful people. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. They're going to be, one of them, at least one of them has to be the best soccer player in the world. I, I got to set high standards. Yeah, well, 
don't have them cry to me. Auntie, Auntie Molly over here. Okay. Um. Yeah. I guess I'm gonna have to find a way to break it to them that they have to be soccer players and not anything else. But that's for the future. Yeah, but... <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm, I'm gonna be like. I'm gonna be giving them like a soccer ball for every time they like. It's your birthday. Oh, another soccer ball. Yeah, but you can play with it and and try to make it positive. But they're just gonna be getting like soccer stuff. So I'm kind of like getting <laughs> into their minds like you better be a soccer player. Yeah. Well, let's see. Let's, let's see out. if it works. Um, I'm gonna record a video with my kids in the I future, better. and they're gonna be the best person in the world. You just you just wait and see. Just watch. Yeah, I'm so podcast episode like 1000 something. Marcos, yeah. kids, we're gonna be the whoever's at McCormick at the moment, they're gonna be talking about my kids winning <laughs> the Ballon d'Or and the World Cup. Just just watch, just watch. Um, but now that you're informed and you're more knowledgeable about the recent events, um, let's get this interview started. Hi guys, welcome to the 16th episode of the MSL podcast. Now we're doing the interview section and we're happy to welcome our first guest for the year. Um, it's a fellow Salvadorian and a McCormick alum. It's Juan Andres Lasala. And hi Juan, happy to have you here. We're really happy and thank you for being here. No, thank you guys for having me. Always a pleasure to, to share. <laughs> So um, Juan right now, he's working for CONCACAF, but he's going to tell us a little bit about his career so far. So can you tell tell us a little bit like about yourself and your career so far? Sure, sure. So as you said, a fellow Salvadorian, uh, born and raised pretty much. Um, I guess from an early age, I figured that sports was my thing. Um, not only football or soccer, I guess, for the purposes of the podcast, um, uh, but uh, every sport, which is a particularity in our country, I think uh, Marco and myself are you know, a few guys who actually enjoy anything beyond the sport. We like, you know, anything from tennis, uh, American football, uh, hockey to an extent, basketball, whatever, Formula One. So um, I figured at, at the time when I went to school, it was back in 2013. This was a fairly new, fairly new career path, if you will. I was mostly, you know, either you went to business or you had to figure something out on, on some other end. But thankfully, UMass had the program, uh, so I, I liked that. I looked into it. I applied. Thankfully, got in. Uh, great experience for me. Uh, I was there for three and a half years. I graduated in December of 2016. And then from there, you know, uh, through, through school, through the different classes, different experience that I had, I figured that I liked um, the operation side of sports, which is more kind of like the delivery and execution of it. So... Um, I managed to get an internship in in Orlando City um, with, the, with the MLS Club, which was fairly new at the time. So I moved down there for a year with, during my OPT. So I was an international student, so I had to do my OPT for a year. Uh, fortunately, that ended uh, within that year. That was 2017. So I had to move back to El Salvador. And um, from there, one day I was having breakfast with my dad, actually. Uh, and he said, hey, listen, there's an opportunity at, at CONCACAF. We were just hanging out, you know, and... Figured, like, yeah, I might as well apply. I think he wanted to get me out of the house at that point. Um, but I applied, and uh, it turned out for the, for the best. I've been here for almost five years now. That was back in May of 2018. Um, it was kind of like a little glimpse into how we ended up having this conversation, right? Yeah, and, and it's actually really relatable for me because also from El Salvador, but also that, that was kind of like my line of thought into like wanting to be part of sport management. I was like, 
Well, I'm from El Salvador. You know, it's a country that's really passionate about sports. Sadly, we're not the best at anything, but um, uh, <laughs> soccer, like beach soccer, which we're really good at. But it's part of the passion and it's part of the culture. So, like, that's something I really relate to. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. And it's, um, you know, if it's soccer related, people love it. It's a, it's a huge passion. It's something that people really, really enjoy and live, really, you know, live for it. Mostly on, a, on an international scene. Locally, it's maybe not as, as followed as it potentially could be. But yeah, certainly people uh, have that enthusiasm for it uh, on an international stage. And I actually didn't know that um, the sport management program here was so new. I, for some reason, I assumed it. I knew I know it's the best one in the country, but not. Yes. No, it's funny you mentioned it because it, it, it was new, not, not particularly to UMass itself, but as a career path, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. There were a few universities that, 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 that had it at the time. Uh, but I think in the past, maybe like five or seven years, I've noticed more and more people getting into it, more and more people having more options to study it at different places. Maybe not always in the school of business. Sometimes it's in kinesiology, but you know, uh, I think more and more people are realizing that it's an option for them, right? Yeah, uh, especially, I mean, I guess we're kind of at the, you guys are at the forefront, but I guess we're just kind of in like the most intense part of it uh, as it picks up. But on that same note, what advice would you give other sport management students at UMass to make the most out of their career, both in college and when they're out, but while they're there, like what did you do that helped you be successful and what advice would you give? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think this is a bit particular to my situation as an international student. Um, I was the outsider, right? Um, so it was a lot of learning new new ideas, new perspectives from my peers, uh, not only my fellow students, but from my, from my professor at the time. So I think a good advice is uh, be willing to listen, be willing to proactively listen rather, you know, ask questions. Don't be afraid to, if you don't know something, feel free to ask. If you find an expert on a topic, feel free to ask. You know, it, it, sometimes people can be scared of annoying someone into it. Uh, but I, I disagree. I think if, if you have the opportunity to ask or, or be curious about something, uh, take it, right? Because that'll teach you either things that you like or spark new interest or on the contrary, things that you don't like. Um, so I think it's a, it's a genuine exp like learning experience to be able to listen to, to others. And I think um, the other thing is get out of your comfort zone would be the other one. It, it was big for me. Sometimes it was difficult, you know, uh, for me, the cold was something new, for example, but I had to go to class, right? For me, it was very easy to just stay behind, stay in my room, uh, put the heat on, turn the TV on and just to, take it easy. But, you know, I had to get out of that comfort zone climate-wise to be able to, or rather to be in class, to be learning, to be, to be you know, getting those good grades that everyone wants, right? Um, that's just a tiny example of getting out of the comfort zone. Um, maybe it's, you know, hanging out with a new crowd. Maybe it's uh, getting into a class that you don't particularly feel thrilled of. Um, it could be tiny things like that. Just expose yourself to those experiences. If, if it fans out for you, that's great. And if it doesn't, then at least you understand a little bit more about yourself, something that you maybe don't feel as passionate about or something that you don't necessarily want to pursue in the future, right? Yeah, and, and I actually like kind, kind of relate to because I'm not like exactly an international student. I'm, I'm out of state, but like living in Florida, like for some years. So I kind of know what it's like to live like in the U.S., but it's not really the U.S., it's Florida. So it's like Spanish was, was my first language here in Florida. Um, but I, I have noticed that like learning about American football, for me, it was something that I wasn't used to. But I got into a lot of rooms 
in which I was the least knowledgeable person. So sometimes like rather than be shy about like asking about about like this sport that was kind of new to me, well, I was like, well, there's so much to learn here. So it's all opportunities. So that's that's a good way to look at it. Um, but um, I wanted to know, you, you saw like the job advert for the CONCACAF, but getting that first job, how, how hard was it for you? Uh, I, I guess, uh, do you mean uh, like a full-time job or do you mean a first the internship or door weigh-in? Uh, your, your first full-time job. Yeah, so this would, I guess the first full-time job would be the one I had in Orlando City, um, which was, even though it was only for a year because of the OPT, it was a full-time position at the time. Yeah, it was an internship full-time kind of thing. Um, so for that one, uh, it was a bit of luck, really. I, I was on Teamwork Online, which is a great tool to, to find these kind of opportunities entry-level. Uh, just, just looking for something to do, right? I was running out of time because this was my last semester and I had to find something before I graduated, basically, to be able to renew my, my uh, student visa to this new, new part of it. Uh, so I started applying and I knew at the time that I wanted to do something related to operations specifically because I, I knew that that was something that I really enjoyed rather than sales, rather than sponsorship. So I was very focused in, into finding that. And I, and I did. There were a few opportunities, not only in in Orlando City, but a few other MLS clubs. There was uh, something with uh, NASCAR as well. But at the end of the day, it was a matter of you know going through the process, getting the interviews, um, saying the things that they wanted to hear, not in the sense that you just have to sell yourself out, but in the sense that, you, you know, make your research, figure out why they want you, figure out why the position is open. Uh, sell yourself as the person that is going to be filling that role that they're looking for, right? Uh, so to, to me, that was that was the good um, good side of it. And then once that ended and um, and had the opportunity to apply for CONCACAF, it was, it was a bit of the same. Uh, I didn't know anyone inside, so it was, you know, trying to sell myself the best as I could. Uh, solid resume, use the, use the right words in the interviews, ask the right questions in the interviews. And yeah, a lot of it has to do with the, with the research that you do be, beforehand, right? Make sure that wherever you're applying to, regardless if it's two applications or 200 applications, that you understand what you're getting into, right? I think some people tend to just send applications for the sake of sending applications. And then at the, at the time of the interview, they're not really prepared to sell themselves to get that job, right? Um, that's interesting. I just have a question about your first job. Like, I know you just mm -hmm. said about it, but um, is that, was it similar to the job you have now? Like, were you kind of doing the same things or did you just, was it just entry? It, it was very similar. It was very similar. So what, what I did in Orlando City was essentially game the operations. So anything that had to be related to the matches themselves at the stadium, working for the club in particular. So I did a lot of locker room preparation, a lot of visiting team days, and was 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 one of, one of my responsibilities. And I did this for the MLS club, the NWSL club, and the USL club. So it was a ridiculous number of matches. I think it was something like fifty or sixty matches throughout the year. So it was, you know. Long weeks, weekends at the, at the stadium. Uh, it was more on the delivery of the stadium performance, if you will. And what I do now is a little bit above that. Uh, I coordinate I coordinate the organization of the event itself. So it can be not only pertaining to the locker rooms and the visiting team, but also connecting with uh, our broadcast partners, with our media partners, with both teams, with the referees, with the match officials, with security. So it's a little bit uh, beyond what I did before, but it's still on the same line, right? It's just a little bit of an expanded role, if you will. Yeah, well, it, I mean, you never, I mean, game day ops is a very specific job and 
I feel like many people don't know exactly what they're getting into, like you said. Um, following up on that, do you think your personality was just built for a job like that? Or do you think you had to learn, were there certain things that you think prospective game, game ops employees have to learn to get be successful in that field? Or? Yeah, definitely. It's a very particular field, right? I, I think it, you could say the same about sales. You have to have the, the sales gene, if you will. For, for game devs, I think you do have to have a, a very specific mentality. Uh, first, you need to understand that whatever your plan A is, whatever you built is going to go wrong. Inevitably, something about the plan is going to fall apart. So you need to be able to adapt, right? You need to be able to, to have that flexibility and not panic at the moment of things going wrong, but rather find solutions, find, be prepared to fall back to those plans, right? Um, so I think, I, I think it's a very particular mentality because you're also providing a service either to a stakeholder or to a venue or to a team, you know, whatever it may be. So if, if you get frustrated, if you start panicking, if you, you know, don't deliver on whatever you're expected to deliver, then everything else surrounding that starts falling apart as well, right? So it all starts with, with staying calm. It all starts with understanding that realistically something will go wrong, right? It's inevitable. And having that patience to absorb the moment, figure out what's going on and find the best solution at the time. I would assume that would also help you like in your day-to-day life, right? Like encountering problems as big as that and you know events that affect everybody when it comes to like personal things I might be less of a problem than it used to be yeah no it, it definitely I mean the, my, my family my friends tell me why, why are you always so calm and it's like that because there's bigger things to worry about right um like, you know if you start panicking you, you you tend to make the wrong decisions both professionally and personally so it's sometimes good to take a step back to understand you know get perspective and then make decisions based on that moment of peace within the chaos so um, you, t- you talked to us a lot about like improvising, being able to be uncomfortable in uncomfortable situations and make them you know the best possible outcome. So I kind of see it drawing back to your time at UMass and, and talking about like being outside your comfort zone and growing there. Um, what are some of uh, the responsibilities you have now in, in your current job and, and as an event coordinator for CONCACAF and what are some of the things you do on a daily basis or a weekly basis? Sure, so there's there's a couple parts to that. The, the question one would be if we're preparing for an event or one would be if we're delivering an event, right? So in the preparation of it, it's, it's gonna sound a bit redundant, but preparing. It's, you know, speaking to the teams, what they need, what we need from them, what they need from us. Speaking to broadcast, same thing, what they, we need from them, what they need from us. And there's different conversations with the different stakeholders that eventually have to connect and be and be in sync because a lot of the requirements that any particular area of the event is going to have impacts the other areas, right? So it's a lot of that communication back and forth, creating scenarios, creating plans, creating, um, so yeah, it's actually a program where you can deliver the event to the best of your capabilities and making sure that everything runs smoothly, that you're delivering high standard events because at the end of the day, this is an international um an international event management or event um, tournament delivery, if you will. So we need to be up to that standard, right? We're not doing a local league. We're not doing a pickup soccer. It's, 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 it has to live up to a certain standard. So we, we need to keep that in mind as well. So it's a lot of that preparation. Now, when we're on, on site, it's delivering on the, all of that preparation. So it's, you know, whatever conversations that you had, making sure that it, it's executable at the venue. If something has to adapt, if something has to change, then you have to make sure that everyone is aware of these changes. It can be as simple as, you know, hey, listen, this gate, 
the bus won't fit through there. We need to bring it up through there. Okay, so that impacts security, that impacts transportation, that impacts the flow of the stadium with accreditations, little things like that, right? So you had a plan, you realized that the plan had a glitch and now you're solving it. So it, it, it's a little bit of that. It, it's two parts of it. But at the end of the day, you're, all, you're always working towards the same goal, which is having a product on the field. For us, that's the ultimate goal, having a product on the field. And that's my ultimate responsibility to be able to make sure that whatever we're showing on the field and its surroundings, you know, spectators, TV broadcast is, is always okay. Uh, so you mentioned that like standard of excellence, I guess you could say, when it mm -hmm. comes to events, do you think reaching that standard or exceeding it would be the most rewarding part of your job? Or is there something that is kind of behind the scenes that you look forward to the most? It's hard to answer because the most exciting part is when the referee starts the match and you can kind of like take a breather and say, okay, it's done next, uh, focus on the next part of it. So in terms of rewarding, yes, it's certainly rewarding to be there and see the, see the delivery of the event happening. But everything behind that is also pretty cool because to me, I, I'm really passionate about this and I really enjoy it. So sometimes it's, it doesn't really feel like a job. I mean, whatever I was doing this afternoon, maybe might be the, a little bit tedious, maybe it might be, not be the most exciting thing, but I know it's working to a bigger thing, right? And having that understanding helps me, you know, when I have to read a document or prepare an Excel, which is not necessarily my favorite thing to do. I know it's working for for something bigger, something more exciting, right? So even though, even though what you want to be is at the stadium, at the facilities, you got to understand that this has to. This is also part of it, right? And I mean, you're you're essentially part of creating those memorable experiences for the fans because going to the stadium is amazing because what you have on the field, the the eleven players playing against the other eleven players and the ball and everything going around there. But there's so much work behind the scenes to make all that possible. So in a way, you've contributed to a lot of memorable moments. But I, I wanted to ask you, what has yeah. been one of the most memorable memorable moments for you working there in CONCACAF? Uh, before I answer that, I, I actually do want to touch on, on what you just mentioned about creating an experience for the fans. At the end of the day, sports is an entertainment, right? We provide a, an entertainment and our competition is, of course, within the industry, the NBA, the NFL, Formula One. But at the end of the day, we're in entertainment. So the competition in reality is uh, the movies, it's um, shows, concerts, it's um, Broadway, stuff like that. So at the end of the day, we've got to make a, a product that not only feeds the sporting element of it, but we're also selling it to the fans, right? They, they like it. They want to have a good experience. So even though sometimes you've got to be by the book and you've got to play the regulations, you also got to remember that you're doing this for a bigger audience, right? Um, now, when you mentioned best experience, it's hard to tell, man. Yeah, I mean, I get paid to travel the world and watch soccer. So it's, I think that's the most rewarding thing, to be honest. I mean, I've been to, to a lot of places that I never imagined I could have traveled to. Uh, I could have only seen them in a postcard or in a movie. And thankfully, I've had the opportunity to, to go to these places, to get to know the people there, to get to know the different cultures, different histories, um, a bit of a history buff. So... Uh, understanding the history of our region in particular, it's it's very rewarding. And I, it's one of the things that I enjoy the most, not only being able to do what I like, but also the, the, the extensions of it, right? Meeting, meeting a lot of interesting people, not only through the sport, but through the connections of it. You know, you stay at hotels, you meet people at the, the hotel bar, at the restaurant, 
um, you meet people at the airport. So, so having those different interactions is always entertaining, right? It's always fun. It's always different. So I think that's one of the things that I really enjoy the most. And you mentioned traveling a lot around Central America. And recently, Fernando Palomo, who's who's a fellow Salvadoran and a ESPN commentator, he posted on Twitter asking, "What's you know what's the best stadium in Central America for us?" So I wanted to ask that question to you. What's well, what do you think as, as most a fan? Yeah. As a fan, it's certainly Estadio Buscaplan in in El Salvador. It's it's the most compact venue. Do you mean Central America specifically, or do you mean in the region? Central America. Yeah, specifically. So yeah, I would say Estadio Buscaplan. Now, operationally, that stadium is a bit older. It's a bit outdated, so sometimes operationally it can be a bit difficult. Operationally, I would say maybe Estadio Nacional in Costa Rica is very, very manageable. It's very, it's well designed. It's modern, and it, for for us in terms of 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 being behind the scenes, it's not necessarily the easiest in the world, but it does have everything that we're looking for at the same in the same place, and it's very easy to manage. So I think two parts to that. As a fan, certainly Cuscatlan, I, I might be a little bit biased, but um, Nacional is definitely the easiest to work in Central America. Uh, mentioning traveling and like relating that back to your everyday life, I mean, first of all, I want to know how often you have to travel for um, your events, because I assume maybe some of them are close to home, um, but after that, if you would want to expand on what you're work-life balances considering you have to be all these different places i'm just very curious about that yeah so i travel around anywhere between 60 and 75 percent of the year last year it was closer to 67 percent. i think i did the numbers the other day i was a bit bored um so it's a lot of traveling it's a lot of time away from home so to to segue that into your question about work-life balance it's hard it's definitely hard because of course, I enjoy what I do, but I, I'm, I'm also very family oriented. I have a lot of friends that I would like to spend a, little, a bit more time to than or with than I actually do. So, so at, at first it was very difficult because I was very focused on on the work element of my life, and that that has some sacrifices to it, right? You don't see the people you love as much as you would like to, so you got to be okay with with those compromises, right? Now, thankfully, I've surrounded myself with people who who are really excited and really happy about me enjoying my work element to it. So they, they make it easier. They make it easier for sure. I mean, they get happy with my successes. They support me when I'm down. And even though I, I don't get to see them as much as I, can, I, I would like to, they, they've been a very, very important part of my, of my career path and my growth. So it, it's hard to find that balance. And I think this is applicable for, for everyone, really, regardless of if you have to travel or if you're just you know, on a nine to five and you take your work home, it's, it's something that you have to manage and it's something that you have to find whatever you're comfortable with. And remember that neither side has to be as important as to overpower the other. You need to find that sweet spot. And, and to be honest, I don't think I have yet. I don't think anyone can say without a shadow of doubt that they have. But as long as you're comfortable with the balance that you were striving for or trying to find, I think, I think you're in a good spot. So among the many places you have traveled, you went to the World Cup. Um, I did, yes, I did. So I wanted to know what was your experience like working there and then experiencing it as a fan? Yeah, so I was there for, um, for two months, from October to December last year. I was working as a team liaison officer for one of the participating teams. So 
it was a bit difficult, uh, not difficult, sorry. It was a bit different than what I usually do. I was more involved in the operations and the communication between that participating team and the organization of the event. So the, the duties were a bit different than what I'm used to, but it was, it was a lot of the same. Normally, I would be the person telling my role, hey, I need this, hey, help me get that, hey, what does the team need, stuff like that. Now I was the person get, receiving that information from both sides, right? And it was really rewarding. I mean, it was a 24-7 thing for sure. I was with the team throughout their stay at the, at the World Cup. So that implied, you know, being able to answer a lot of questions that you didn't necessarily have the answer to, uh, being prepared to have different difficult conversations with different people that you didn't necessarily have a, a, a working relationship with from before, because that, of course, would make it easier. But overall, it was it was an amazing experience. It was amazing. I mean, I learned so much before the team got there. We had workshops. Uh, we went to we went to the stadiums. We went to the hotels, getting to know you know everything around the event. So it was a, a huge learning experience on that sense. And then while the team was there, it was it was really fun because the team really integrated me as part of their own. We we shared a lot of time together. We shared a lot of experiences together. Maybe not a, it wasn't always the best of times in terms of results, but uh, certainly the experience in terms of working together and building those relationships was uh, was really rewarding. And then afterwards, I had the opportunity to stay as a fan, and that was a completely different thing. Um, also amazing, also really excited to be to be there. But I, I got to enjoy it, as, as I said before, uh, as part of the enthusiasm, right? As part of the fan crazy, you know, I want to be here. I want to see the match. I, I don't care about anything else. I just want to see the 22 guys chasing a ball and be happy about that. Um, it was really cool as well because the the atmosphere was was electric throughout the entire month of, of the World Cup. There were people from all over the world in a single city, so you had a bunch uh, mix of different cultures, mix of different people, backgrounds, experiences. And they were just there sharing the same passion, right? And it was really fun getting to know different people, get, asking questions, them asking me questions that I would have considered something standard or something normal and they were completely blown out of the water when I gave them my, my answers or my opinions on things because it was just so different to what they're used to right and same for me I, I had some conversations where I was like wow really so that's what's going on in your country or, or oh, wow that's how you how you guys do things it's it's really eye-opening to be able to to get those those types of exposures and experiences with with different people so overall I I, I think I spoke a lot right now but uh it, it, it was really cool it really cool uh, in all sense of it and it wasn't just any welcome as in like objectively looking at it i think it was one of the most entertaining ones that i've seen and the amount of spectacle the amount of underdogs beating bigger teams it was i imagine a magical atmosphere in terms of everybody was surprised what was going on nobody expected morocco to be there that long and i imagine a lot of morocco fans stayed long stayed in qatar longer than they imagined so it was a pinnacle of, like of sports in terms of the whole world is watching, but also the whole world was in Doha, Qatar during those games. It was, I'm imagining something amazing. Yeah, I know that you mentioned uh, Morocco. I had the opportunity to go to the match between them and Spain in the round of 16. Uh, and and, and it, it was crazy. I mean, the Moroccan fans are really passionate, really, really passionate. The match wasn't the best match in, in terms of quality, but it was just sitting there with the fans. It was amazing. They were probably like a 90-10 split, something like that. It was really, really Moroccan. Um, a lot of Moroccans were supporting their team at the stadium. 
and you could tell that that influenced the result, right? So much pressure from the fans to the to the match certainly made it more difficult for Spain to do something about it, right? One of the best matches um, in terms of being a fan there that I experienced. Yeah, the, the fans, I, I definitely could, could see that the fans were the, the 12th player. And it was something so amazing to see them celebrating afterwards with their families, the players. And looking back at, at the operations side, all of that was possible because of people working in operations and planning the whole World Cup and making it happen. So it's... Yeah, it was... it's interesting because it changes your perspective on things. Now, now, I, now I see a match on TV and I'm not only following the ball, but I'm aware of you know where the ambulance is parked, uh, where the entrances are, why are there some empty seats in that particular section? Um, why is the match kicking off late? There are little things like that that I wouldn't normally be aware of previously that now I'm a little bit more aware of. And it changes your perspective on, on, on how you see the matches and the tournaments. Uh, especially, Margaret, you were saying how the 2022 World Cup like felt a little bit more special. I never follow the World Cups. Margaret makes fun of me all the time. <laughs> he made me predict without uh, even knowing anything. And yeah, I I I have never followed it before, but for some reason this year, like I got myself caught up in making predictions. Like I don't know anything, but yeah, I don't know. It was cool. It's fun to add on that. Um, you know, whatever gets you involved, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but um, Marco, did you have any more questions about the World Cup, or I think that's? I think that's um, those were the questions I wanted to ask about the World Cup, which I think, looking back on it. I miss the World Cup already. Oh, for sure. I'm sad that I have to wait four years for the next one. Three and a half. <laughs> yeah, three and a half. Yeah, because this one was kind of in, in the winter. Um, but yeah, we have um, one last question. And it's something that we ask every guest. And every time we're surprised by a different question. So what is one question uh, you wish we would have asked you? And how would you have answered that question? Oh, that's a That's a good one. A question that I wish you guys would have asked me? Yeah. Ooh, good one. Um, that's a great question. I would. I wish you would have asked me that one. <laughs> um, let's see. I'm, try, I'm trying to go, go back to my student days and try to figure out like something that I would have asked at the time. I, I, I think... I think the give me some career advice question is a bit burned. But I think what, something that doesn't get asked enough is how do you, you know, I'm, I'm trying to phrase this correctly, but essentially how do you have difficult conversations with people, right? How, how do you learn to say no in a professional environment? Because a lot of times you don't want to upset anyone, right? And usually when you say no, you're inherently going to upset someone. So... I think a, an important question to ask is how do you get comfortable with saying no and how do you manage those types of expectations, right? Um, I think that's a good one. Like, do I need to answer it as well? Yeah. <laughs> sure. So it really depends on, on what type of conversation you're having. If it's more of a, like with your peers trying to figure something out in, in the early stages of it, if you say no to half the ideas that come up. But once you're having a difficult conversation with anyone for whatever reason, um, you know, some people are way more comfortable with saying no than others. Me, my, for myself, I know I have a hard time sometimes saying no. 
uh, some of my peers, they have, they're very easily say no to anything and move on. For me, I, I struggle with it a bit more because I don't want to upset anyone, right? Even though I, I want to help. At the end of the day, we provide a service. We're facilitators and we want to help. But you gotta, you got to understand that saying no some, is usually, for, well, when saying no is the right answer, you have to give it straight up. You can't beat around the bush. You don't have to, you know, um, decor your answer with any elaboration. Sometimes no means no. And if it's upset someone, then, I mean, so be it. If it's the right answer to say, you have to be upfront with it. And if you're not, it can lead to miscommunication. It can lead to mistakes. It can lead to loosening of the rules, which at the end of the day, you can't really, you need to enforce rules, right? Rules, you, you don't have to allow them to change or adapt to that particular person in that particular situation. Um, so I, I, I think the, what I'm trying to get to is saying no is okay. And you need to find a way to, for yourself to be comfortable with that. How you get to that will depend very much on who you are and how your personality is and how you, how you, how you relate to people. But as long as you get to that point where you're comfortable saying no, I think, I think you're in a good spot. I think a lot of emotional intelligence comes into play because you got to understand the social cues also when, when you're talking to that person and saying no, you want to see how they receive the perceive the no. If they think you know it was really hard, it took them back a little bit to feel the empathy and, and know how to follow up with that no. And and you know sometimes it's no but, and you propose a different solution to the problem, and you start another line of problem solving. And sometimes you do have to say a hard no and and exactly set your boundaries. But I think when when there's respect between both parties in the conversation. And there's empathy and, and compassion. I feel like even the hardest conversations can be had and can lead to something better. Yeah, and, 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 and I think to expand a little bit on that, when you say no, you have to be sure that you're saying no to the, to the right thing, right? If you don't know, it's fine to say, I don't know. Uh, it's absolutely okay to say, I don't know, let me get back to you. Or, hey, listen, I don't have that answer for you at this moment. Let me check. Uh, that's absolutely fine. Um, because when you come back and you have to say that no, or maybe it could be a yes, but if you have to say no, at least you get that backing, right? At least you try to help. And then you said, hey, listen, unfortunately, that's a no. And we can either do this or we can do that, or that's just a hard no and move on. But yeah, I think as, a, as an expansion to it, saying I don't know is also a, a correct answer. And, and I feel like sometimes we're afraid to say I don't know because we feel like, oh, I'm going to be perceived as being a novice at this or that I don't know. but be honest like if, if, if one is honest and says i don't know it also shows a level of confidence in not knowing and also i feel like i don't know but you can ask questions about how or or, mm. or find the answer to that i don't know because at the end of the day being more knowledgeable is better so if you don't know something and it comes up then one can like you can go ask another person that's an expert and learn from them too yeah, and you, and you might think that's only applicable to, you know, to your early stages in your career, but I found that it, that's not the case. I, I, that, that's something that is applicable if, if you're 25 or if you're 65, you know. If you don't know, you don't know, and that's fine. I mean, if you have to say no, you have to say no. If you're, you know, in the entry level in your second day of the job and, you know, it's very clear that you have to say no to something, say it. It's fine. You don't have to, you know, sell yourself for that yes man mentality if, if that's going to get you into a tougher situation after, right? Yes, and, and at the end of the day, it's about being genuine and meaning what you say. And I feel that at the end of the day, 
we can, every day can be a new learning opportunity. So that doesn't matter if you're the CEO of a company or for a, a sports team, or you're in an entry level position. At the end of the day, you you can be taught about a new a new perspective to the same problem you you've been looking at for a lot of time and haven't found the right solution to it. And then somebody that's new to the problem can teach you something. So that's a great that was a great question that led to a great answer. Yeah, you you guys might think on that one. <laughs> Well, it has been an amazing conversation. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Juan. We really enjoyed it. And it was something that I think is going to add a lot of value to the to the viewers listening to this. And especially, I can say it at, at a personal level, you gave me a lot of perspective into game day operations and event planning and all that. And in terms of what goes into the soccer game I'm watching on TV. Same here. Yeah, no, thank you guys for having me. I think uh, this was fun. And uh, I mean, feel free to reach out anytime you have a question or anything that you guys want to follow up on. I'm always available to, to help a fellow student. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you, guys.